questions concerning his bones. I have to admit to you what I admitted to my fellow elders earlier this week, that when I first read this text and realized this was the one that was assigned to me, I was um, somewhat fearful. The fear was, how can I create and develop an entire sermon on this narrative which simply tells us that close to death, Joseph mentioned the exodus and asked his relatives to be sure that his bones would be packed up and, and sent to the land of Canaan. But I want to affirm right now publicly the wisdom of God, particularly God the Holy Spirit, in inspiring that verse. Actually, I was one of the people who argued, quote-unquote, that we take a more careful look at some of these verses. The original intention was that verses 17 through 20, or at least verses 20 through 22, be handled in one sermon. My point was that since God has said something specific about each of these men, maybe we should take a look at it. And then later, I, for a brief time, regretted my suggestion. But I don't know, now that I have studied this verse very carefully. Now, I want to say again that God is the judge as to what should be said about anyone. If it were left to me to determine uh, what we should preach about with regard to Joseph concerning his faith, I would have chosen any number of other things. He had received revelatory dreams from God. He was abandoned by his brothers and sold into slavery, but he trusted God. He worked for a man whose wife lied about him and falsely accused him, which became the cause of 13 years of imprisonment. He interpreted dreams. He asked the men who heard the interpretation to please share with Pharaoh what he had done for them. They forgot him. Eventually, he interpreted the dream of Pharaoh. He was raised to a place of prominence. He became virtually the vice regent of the nation. He became the prime minister under Pharaoh. No one more powerful than Joseph. He became the redeemer of his own family and, in a sense, the man who paved the way for the ultimate redeemer to come because if the nation of Israel was not enabled to survive, then the promised seed could not come. Just the faith that Joseph had in resisting the temptation of Potiphar's wife alone seems like it would have been the thing to focus upon. But no, the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on the demonstration of a faith that was superior to all of these other things. Now, that's what may be shocking to you. I'm suggesting to you that the faith Joseph manifested and exercised in the hour of his death was the greatest demonstration of faith in the entirety of his life. And I suspect that's why the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to focus on those events. So, we need to always remember that God's judgment is different from our judgment. And so, 
As we look at this verse this morning, we learn something about how to die well. How to die well. We see in this man who is dying a living faith. Now, let me just remind you of the purpose of this series ever so briefly. We talked about that as well in our elders' meetings. Well, our purpose is the same as the writer of the Hebrews. And he makes it clear, especially in the immediate verses preceding chapter 11, that his purpose was to encourage and to inspire perseverance. Because there was a time when his readers were perhaps more zealous, more uh, successful, more determined, more hopeful in their perseverance than they were at the time that he got this letter or this sermon, however you like to think of it. Because he has to tell them in verse 32 of chapter 10 to recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle and suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now notice... You see, he's talking about the former days. But things have changed. They've lost that determination to persevere. They've become fearful. They've become doubtful. Their faith, their faith had waned. And so he says in verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, says the writer to his readers, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Do you see why chapter 11 follows on those words? There is a call to persevere. There is a call to revitalize their faith. And so the writer gives us example after example after example of those who demonstrated a wonderful and exemplary faith. So that's our purpose as your pastors. We want to see the members of Heritage Baptist Church individually, and we want to see this church corporately become more and more a people and church of faith. We want to see us persevere. And frankly, we want to see us have greater answers to our prayers. I'm not going to take the time, though I intended to, to turn back to Matthew chapter 17, but I'll just remind you that when... Peter, James, and John came down from the mountain of transfiguration. They found something happening. The other disciples had tried to cast demons out of a young man, and they couldn't. And the father came to Jesus and said, I ask your disciples to exercise this demon, but they could not. And Jesus, looking in part at his disciples, said, Oh, faithless, faithless generation. How long must I labor among you? 
And then he says, if you had the faith just of the size of a grain of mustard seed, you could cast a mountain into the sea. And he told the disciples specifically the reason they couldn't do it was because of their little faith. Their little faith. So what does that imply? It implies that if we have a greater faith, we can do more in prayer. We can prevail more in prayer. So part of the purpose of this series is to help this congregation become a church that more and more prevails in prayer. Now, just notice the structure for a second of this verse. I think we see, first of all, what Joseph did. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, here's what he did. He did two things. He made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and he gave directions concerning his bones. Those are the two things Joseph did. When did he do it? He did it at the end of his life. There's that little parenthesis there. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, did these two things. And how did he do them? Well, this is the obvious and yet often overlooked. What are the first two words of this verse? By faith. So this is a demonstration of faith that the Holy Spirit wants to draw our attention to. The things that Joseph did, he did by faith. And we must not minimize them. Because we're going to see that they were deeply rooted in an absolute total persuasion that the promise of God concerning the nation of Israel was going to be kept. These people are going to be delivered out of the land of Egypt. They weren't even in that terrible affliction yet at this time when Joseph was saying goodbye to his family. But he knew that was going to happen as well. Why? Because God had promised it would happen. And it was by faith in the truthfulness of God's promises that Joseph spoke about a coming exodus and requested, demanded, if you will, that his bones not be sent up to Shechem like his father's upon his death, but be kept in Egypt until the redemption of his people, whom he wanted to identify with, took place. He was totally persuaded of the veracity, the truthfulness of God's promise. And that's what starts to make this verse very, very significant. So that's the structure, what he did, when he did it, and how he did it. But what I'd like to do now is just step back and take a more careful look at how Joseph's certainty of the coming exodus enabled him to become an overcomer. Now John tells us in his little epistle in chapter 5 and verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. You see how this passage in 1 John 5, 4 relates to Hebrews 11? It's what it's all about, overcoming faith. And Joseph was able to overcome the world. What are the three things that Joseph was able to overcome by the power of his faith? I want to suggest three. So here's the outline. 
I've given you the structure of the verse. I'm not going to follow the structure. We saw what he did, when he did it, and how he did it. But I just want to step back, or if you will, fly over at a 30,000-foot level and look down and see three things that Joseph's faith enabled him to overcome. And there are issues that we have to deal with. His faith enabled him to overcome the deception of prosperity, the darkness of culture, and the dread of death. Let me just say that again in case you're taking notes. His faith enabled him to overcome the deception of prosperity, the darkness of culture, and the dread of death. Let's think about each of those just briefly. The deception of prosperity. You know, prosperity is often a more severe trial than poverty. We tend to think that, well, the worst thing that could happen to me would be to be very, very, very poor. I would be seriously tempted to sin against God and not trust him. And that is often true. But it is also true that people who are very, very poor often are desperate and see their need for help outside of themselves, sometimes. But I think it's fair to say that, generally speaking, the more dangerous trial, the more severe temptation is prosperity. One of the old writers, actually I think it was Spurgeon, said that it's always harder to carry a full cup than it is one half full because it's easy for it to spill and come out. And so it is in life. Prosperity is a very difficult trial and temptation. Just imagine what it must have been like for Joseph. Especially in light of what he came through. His brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites. He was left in a pit. He became a slave in Egypt. He ended up, after being falsely accused, in prison for 13 years, as I've already said. When you come out of that kind of a mess, there's a real temptation to fall in love with your new life. Especially for him to be raised to prime minister of the largest empire of the day, Egypt. Second in command only to Pharaoh. It is a fact that wherever Joseph went during those years which he served under Pharaoh, he had his own chariot and heralds preceded him everywhere he went, crying out, bow the knee, bow the knee. He was a celebrity. We all like to see politicians, especially if they're famous politicians, and get close to them just to say we saw them or to talk to them would be even more exciting. I'm sure there were people who wanted Joseph's autograph. He was very famous. He was very powerful. He had great authority. He had unbelievable wealth. He had dignity. He had comfort. He had everything a human being could want. 
But you know what? This text and the rest of the record of the life of Joseph doesn't give us the slightest idea that his prosperity diminished his faith. No. Right up to the very end of his life, his faith was vibrant and strong. He was not deluded by prosperity. As subtle and alluring and deceptive and addictive and comforting as prosperity can be, it didn't have that effect upon Joseph. Why? You know the answer. It was because of his faith. He believed there was a real God. He believed he had a real people. He believed he had real laws. He believed that this God had a real kingdom and a real redemptive purpose. And he believed that this God had made promises that could not but come to pass. He believed all of these things with full persuasion. He never took his eye off of the promises of God. And let me say this early because I want to repeat it so that it settles deeply in our minds. Neither did he take his eyes off of the God of the promises. This man's faith enabled him to overcome the deception of prosperity. How is relative prosperity affecting you, my brother or my sister or my friend? Be honest in answering that question. Or how is the prospect of prosperity affecting you. The Bible speaks with good reason about the deceitfulness of riches. And I have a word for you parents. I just want to caution you, mom and dad, don't give your kids everything they want. You will make them addicted to the world. You will make them addicted to their own form of prosperity. It isn't a favor to give your children everything they want. It's a disfavor. But when you enjoy the good things of God, the nice things of God, which he truly gives to his people, for he is the one who makes us prosperous, be sure that you talk to your children about the relative value of prosperity. Be sure you help your children think through why this is good with a small g. Because it comes from goodness with a capital G. It comes from God. Take them back again and again and again to the source of every good and perfect gift that comes down from heaven. And let them see the goodness of God and let them see the fading value and satisfaction of lower level good things. And when certain things that they thought were so good... It will, not be rem- it will not be morose for you to say, Honey, do you know why that no longer satisfies you? Because it wasn't designed to satisfy you by God. It was designed to point you to God. Yes, it was good. And we have many good things, and we should enjoy them to the glory of God. But we must not fall in love with the gift we must ever be in love 
with the giver. So that's the first thing that he overcame, the deception of prosperity. Secondly, by the grace of faith, and I emphasize the grace of faith. Faith is a gift from God. No one can believe on their own. It is the fruit of the new birth, but it is a grace which uh, points entirely to God. That's probably why the grace of faith is the, is the chief and supreme grace, because it always looks outside of ourselves to him. It doesn't bring any glory to self. And this grace of faith that every true believer experiences is something that can also enable you to overcome the darkness of culture. The darkness of culture. Now, again, I want you just to imagine, what must it have been like for Joseph? You remember how old he was. I think I've already mentioned it. 17 when he was sold by his brothers. What were you like when you were 17? What would have happened to you if you had been exiled to another culture where you were nowhere near your parents, nowhere near your teachers, nowhere near your pastors, nowhere near any other Christians, unable to have a Bible, unable to go to a Bible conference, unable to go to a prayer meeting, unable to read a good book, unable to have fellowship with another single human being who knew your God. What would that be like for you? Maybe not the first day or week or month or year, but how about after four years, five years, ten years? Joseph lived in Egypt 80 years 70 to 80 years. What effect would the darkness of culture have on you, even our own culture, dangerous culture, where Christianity and biblical values have had a profound influence and where there still remains much what we call common grace, Less and less and less, to be sure. What would happen to you in this culture if you had no other means of grace to avail yourself of except your personal knowledge of and communion with God and remembering his word as it was transferred to you by your father, Jacob, and by your grandfather, Isaac, and by your great-grandfather, Abraham, you're not with them now. You've buried your father. His bones have been sent back to Shechem. Where would you be? Where would you be if you were abandoned to another major city of this world anywhere where wickedness abounds? Well, only God knows, but I can tell you this for sure. Where you would be would depend upon the quality and strength and vitality of your faith. Because it was Joseph's faith that enabled him to resist all of the evils of that culture and not to imbibe them. He lived in the midst of darkness, philosophical darkness, moral darkness, religious darkness. They worshipped everything under the sun. One satirist 
said, someone who writes satire said, oh, speaking of Egypt, oh, happy people who can even grow your gods in a garden because they worship plants as well as many, many other things. It was a vile, wicked, dark culture. And yet, Joseph did all that was his duty. And by the way, just a little aside, doesn't he teach us that it isn't always the duty, in fact, rarely is it the duty of a, for a Christian to become culturally irrelevant and go live where only other Christians are. God wants us to be the light of the world where we are, the salt of the earth where we are. His grace is sufficient. Are there times we need to run and flee? Yes, there are. All of us need to run and flee from certain immediate environments that are so dangerous to our soul. I'm not denying that, but I'm talking about, generally speaking, the world in which we live. We can't go out of this world. We're not supposed to live in a monastery or a convent. We have to live and rub shoulders with unconverted people and live for the glory of God in the midst of darkness. That's what Joseph did, and I'm simply telling you he did it by faith, and you and I can do it by faith, and we must do it by faith. So let me just ask you this before I move to my third and final point. Would you please think through the various temptations that you are facing these days of your life because of this particular culture? Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at school, maybe it's television, maybe it's literature, who knows what it is except the omniscient God. Would you please just ask yourself this question? In what way, in what ways... Do I feel the pressure and the lure and the power of a dark culture to compromise the convictions and behaviors of my life? I've got to resist them. Joseph started resisting them as a young man who feared God. And part of that resistance was wonderfully displayed when he said to Potiphar's wife, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God, let alone your husband? I can't. Goodbye. Well, that's a very dramatic illustration of resisting the pressure because often the pressures are more subtle. And I'm asking us all just to think honestly and carefully. How am I feeling the pressure of being conformed to the world, which Paul said we must not be conformed to the world, pressed into its mold. Enough about that. And then I come to my third illustration of how Joseph's faith enabled him to overcome the world. And in this case, it's the dread of death. The dread of death is very natural. Hebrews tells us that we're all born with the fear of death, the natural fear of death. And Christ came to destroy death, and I love how we sang about that today. Thank you, Mark, for choosing that as our last song. One of those phrases said, it is not death for dust to be swept aside, something like that. We're dust, and everything we own, in a sense, is dust. It's only death for those who love the dust. 
But death is a fearful thing, isn't it? Let's be honest. Does everyone here feel it's your testimony to say, you know, I think if I were suddenly to die, I wouldn't have an ounce of fear. I wish that were the case. I'm sure there are many among us who are convinced right now God has already given you a, a, a deathbed grace, in a sense. You long for death. We all sort of fear the process of death. We would like to go quickly, suddenly. We don't want to go painfully. We don't want to be a burden to our family. But I'm asking a deeper question. Death itself. If you knew you were going to die this afternoon at 3.07, would your heart beat? Would your breath become short? Would you get nervous? Would you sweat? Or would you rejoice and have peace and joy and say, for to me, to die is gain. Come, welcome death. Well, to the extent that our faith is not all that it ought to be, even we fear death. Now that's being conquered by sanctifying grace, but the fundamental fear of death no longer has to rule over us any more than it ruled over Joseph. Joseph welcomed death. As we envision him perhaps sitting on his bed or his couch and his days were drawing near, we don't know how eminent death was, but clearly that's what the expression means. Literally, it says, as his days came to an end, but most of our translations capture the essence of it and say, basically, when he was dying. Can you envision yourself sitting on a couch or lying on a bed and your family's gathered around you? And do you have a smile on your face? And you have peace in your countenance? And you have joy in your voice? And you talk to your family members and you tell them how happy you are to soon depart. And you reassure them of the promises of their deliverance if they are trusting in Christ. And you caution and warn them if they are not. How will you be when the hour of death comes? Well, if we are like Joseph... We will be happy and peaceful and longing and anticipatory and we will be focused not on our departure but on our witness and our testimony. You know, Spurgeon said that actually death is the greatest opportunity to witness. Here are his words. The grand old man becomes most illustrious in his last hour. Death did not dim, but rather brightened the gold. It brightened the gold like the sun, which looms larger at its setting. And then he says, is it not a grand thing for a Christian to do his very best action last, being strongest in divine power, when his own weakness is supreme. We should desire to serve God in youth and health and strength with all the might we have, but it may happen to us that like Samson, our greatest act may be 
the greatest act of faith when we die. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Is it possible that the most beautiful display of faith that you will ever give is the one that's coming when you lie on your deathbed? But you see, Joseph didn't have this dread that so many people have. He had one thing on his mind, and that is the redemption that was coming to Israel certain because the God who spoke of it is truthful. He was so certain of it that he said, I don't want my bones taken back where they're, they're going to be eventually. I want them to stay here. I want them to be a reminder of all my people when the affliction comes that a day is also coming when in deference to my request, my bones will be taken to the promised land. And when we go into Exodus chapter 13, the Bible tells us that Moses took the bones of Joseph. He was embalmed. He was put in a coffin. That's how Genesis, the book of beginnings, ends with Joseph in a coffin. And did you know that near one of the major pyramids in Egypt, right now, near one of the tombs of one of the great pharaohs, there is a monument tomb for someone who could be no other than Joseph because the titles speak of him as the keeper of the granaries and the one before whom the heralds cried out, bow the knee. But Joseph said, I don't want to be buried there. I want to be buried where I'm headed when the God of redemption accomplishes his redeeming purposes, when the God of truth keeps his promise and delivers his people after the fourth generation. I want to stay here. I want to identify with my people. I am not an Egyptian. Joseph, you shouldn't say that. You're the prime minister. I am not an Egyptian. I live in Egypt. I am an Israelite. I am a child of God. I am a brother to my fellow believers. I want to identify with them. I know that they're going to be delivered. I want to go with them. Does that sound like dread, the dread of death to you? No. And if Joseph had that kind of peace and faith deep down in his soul, we can have it as well. So how did he do these things? Well, he overcame all these enemies, as I've already said repeatedly, by faith. He had his eyes fixed on the promises and on the person behind the promises. And parents, I just want to suggest to you again, by way of application, that you teach your children the promises of God's word. And teach them also the attributes of God, the qualities, the perfections of God, the characteristics of God. Teach them both things. Listen to me carefully. Attributes, promises. Attributes, promises. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Start with that little definition given to us by the Puritans in the Shorter Catechism and choose any one of those. In fact, choose them all and study your Bible until you find a promise that relates to that attribute. And raise your children knowing the word of God and in particular the promises of God because the promises of God is what they will live by and it is what they will die by. 
Nothing will bolster our faith more than studying the person of God and the promises of God. They're inseparable. The only reason the promises are going to come to pass is because the one who made the promises is truth. And so, mom and dad, as you seek to build your own faith by the same pursuit, please, please, please teach your children the scriptures. Have them memorize the promises of God. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Teach them the promises about the return of our Savior, the promises about the judgment to come, the promises about the eternal state, the promises about the new heaven and the new earth. And then your children, like the son of Jacob, will have faith to live by and to die by. Take them repeatedly to your Savior until he becomes their Savior. Because your Savior and their Savior is the greater than Joseph. He too relinquished prosperity, the glories of heaven. He too entered a dark culture and didn't conform to it. He too faced the dread of death, but a worse death than any of us could ever face. The worst part of his death was divine abandonment. He too believed in the promises of his father, He too identified with his people. And he overcame all of these in order to be our Savior. Take your children to the greater Joseph again and again and again. Well, I want to conclude with this little story about two men who died well. That's what this passage is about. And by the way, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the three of them are put together in our text because all three of them are about what they did at the very end of their life when they were approaching death. So this passage is about dying well, isn't it? It's not just a nice little, hey, that'll be a nice topic. No, that's the topic of the text. Who do I want to remind you of? Two English reformers. After Edward VI died in the 1500s, his older sister Mary became queen and infamously became known as Bloody Mary. She reversed all the reforms that her brother had installed with regard to Reformation theology. And she began arresting and executing all believers. And every Protestant minister had to meet to be examined. And if he didn't deny his Protestant beliefs, especially his beliefs about the Lord's Supper, if he didn't affirm the Romish doctrine of transubstantiation, which simply means that literally and physically the wine and the bread turn into the body of Christ, and if you take it and ingest it, you will have eternal life. If he didn't embrace that erroneous teaching and recant all of his reformed biblical beliefs, he would be burned at the stake, and she had 280-some burned at the stake, and two of the greatest reformers were Ridley and Latimer. They were dear friends. And on October the 16th, 1555, in Oxford, they went to their place of death, which was really their place of life. 
And when they greeted each other, they embraced each other. Ridley was dressed in a black gown, Latimer in a long shroud. Mr. Ridley embraced Latimer fervently and bid him, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. He then knelt down by the stake. This is Ridley. He knelt down by the stake and he kissed it. And then he prayed. And he prayed earnestly. And after his prayer, he and Latimer had a very brief and quiet conversation. And the blacksmith came and bound them with an iron chain to the stake. And they hung a bag of gunpowder around each of their necks. And they gathered stacks of wood and put it all around them. And pretty soon, someone came with a torch and lit the wood. And as it was lit at Dr. Ridley's feet, it caused Mr. Latimer to say, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. When Dr. Ridley saw the fire flaming up towards him, he cried out with a wonderful loud voice, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. Mr. Latimer, crying as vehemently on the other side of the same stake, prayed, O Father of heaven, receive my soul. And those two men went into the presence of their Redeemer. They died well. You know why they died well? Because they believed rightly the promises of God. And they knew that behind those promises was a God of infinite truth. And that's how we should live. And that's how we should die. When your day of death comes, will you die well as best you can tell right now? I know, deathbed grace, etc., etc. I understand. But right now, right now, do you think you're going to die well? To whatever extent we are concerned about that, I can tell you what our greatest need is. It's a five-letter word. F-A-I-T-H. We need the faith that comes from God and trusts him and gives all glory to him. Brothers and sisters, when that time comes, may we all die well. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this verse. We confess to our shame that without carefully thinking about it, It doesn't seem to give the beauty that it does upon careful reflection. Lord, help us to be like Joseph, old covenant believer, far less privileged than we are, no Bible, no written promises to build his life on. Oh, Lord, we argue from the lesser to the greater. If you could give him the grace of faith, who lacked all these benefits that we have so many of, you can surely increase our faith. May Heritage Baptist Church be made up of people of faith, growing faith, dynamic faith, unshakable faith, dying faith. And may we manifest it 
in this community and to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.